Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. Rank Squad and welcome to Ranks FC. It's your favourite football podcast back for a second time on this feed this week to talk about the World Cup final, which takes place on Sunday. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your host today. And joining me today is our World Cup guru, Mr. Dean Jones. How are you doing, mate? Hello, mate. Yeah, um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm excited, I think. I think this is the final we needed. I think we wanted this to be the... The finale, as as you know, nice the narrative was of an underdog story being in the final and all and all the rest of it. Like we should now get the best possible football ending. Um, you know, there's the obvious narratives of like Messi and Mbappe and all this kind of stuff, but like just generally player for player, like this is kind of what you expect of a World Cup final in terms of the levels that the players are capable of. Um, Morocco have been brilliant, Croatia. Maybe a bit less so, but they, they had strengths that, that counted for a lot. But these are the two. This is where we're at. And um, yeah, I think this should be... It's a final you don't want to miss. I think that that's what's most important. If Morocco or Croatia were in the final, I think like your average football watch might be a little bit more... Yeah, can I be bothered? Can I be bothered to get up and watch this? Should I stay up late into the night to watch this? France v Argentina, World Cup final, you're staying up. You're watching it. It's big names, isn't it? Big names. And I think what's interesting is we did a, a thing earlier in the tournament. Uh, our friend Aaron Manise, who's been on this podcast before talking about Canada, uh, did a bracket before the World Cup and everyone had picked it. And this was the second most predicted final for pretty much. So for all yeah. the shocks that this World Cup has thrown up and all the different bits and bobs and all the narratives and all the fairy tales, we have got to a point where this was a relatively expected. I mean, the only thing that was predicted higher than this was a Brazil versus yeah. France final. So yeah. you can you can see how things have panned out in terms of the, the teams coming through. But I think there's lots to be excited about. Just before we start, we should probably mention that Sam isn't here. He's been hit by a nasty bout of food poisoning. So I'm not going to go into detail because I don't think anyone needs to be throwing up their <laughs> breakfast. But yeah. equally, it's uh, one of those. We hope he gets better soon. He sent me over some things. So we're going to use his framework today to talk about five key areas or five key facets of this World Cup final. We'll work through them as best we can between the two of us, but get better soon, Sam. Yeah. Um, right, Absolutely. should we get into it then? We're going to do this. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit at the end about some predictions and maybe a little bit You're about You're doing the a ranking, quarterly. mate. Let's, let's address that first. I mean, Well, this it's is... Sam's ranking that I'm basically working off. But it's I, your it ranking, me. mate. It's, it's mine. your I'll ranking. It. It's the Jack Show today. Um, such is the occasion of a World Cup final. Such are the hours that you've put into this tournament. I think it's fitting. I think it's fitting that Sam is missing the final um he, he's he's missing it but what a standing we've got here uh the man that ha hasn't missed a minute of this has, has done 472 podcasts covering the tournament and here he is doing the big one yeah well it feels it feels like we've got to i've earned, earned a space at the table uh, on the I, big I trust stage. i trust you know what you're talking about here i think i do i think i do <laughs> um right let's talk about this let's talk about five defining factors here and let's start with what you mentioned right at the top this whole Lionel messi versus killing mbappe kind of 
undercard sam put it as you know on on the fact that this is the biggest game in in world football the undercard is that both of them are on five goals mm. and they've got the golden boot kind of un- underlying the entire game which, which i think is is pretty cool it's a it's an interesting narrative alongside it even if it maybe isn't the most fair i think of, of comparisons and look we'll come on to antoine griezmann but i think he's been france's best player and now Lionel Messi has, has clearly been Argentina's best player. So maybe the, the actual de- de- defining battle here should be LM10 versus AG7 rather than LM10 <laughs> versus KM10. Um, but yeah. these are very much the star attractions on, on both sides of this. And whilst both have been incredible in this tournament, I think they've both done it in very different ways. Everything that Argentina has done has revolved around Messi, right? He has been the creative linchpin. You know, I think him and Alvarez between the two of them have conjured up 11 of the 12 goals in some form that Argentina have scored, whether that be goals or assists. It's pretty stunning stuff. Mm. Kylian Mbappe has had a bit of a weird tournament in, in some ways. He's been excellent. He scored five goals. He's got four assists, I think, as well, maybe three. But he's definitely got, mm. you know, a couple of assists as well. So it's messy, yeah. obviously. But we're looking at these two players, and, and Mbappe's thing has been about this kind of explosion into moments. He hasn't been there defining games, I don't think. What has happened is, you know, when he's got the ball, there's that obvious fear when you're playing him. And, and actually, something I've noticed over the last couple of days is we've talked about the fact that when Messi played against Gvardiol in in the semi-final, and everyone was on about this, oh, look the way he slows the ball down, and then he goes again, and he slows the ball down, and that's actually what sets the defender off. That's what means that he's basically undefendable. Mbappe does this really, really well and always has, I think, you know, and we saw actually in the quarterfinal against England, the only time he really got the better of Carl Walker was actually when he did this and he managed to sort of draw Walker into slowing down and then exploded back off again into that mm. pace. And, and it was incredible to see when it happens because I don't think there's much you can do about it. It's just the ability to make that happen. And so when we're looking at this game, you're looking at, you know, a young superstar. And, and also there's this kind of passing the crown narrative that's been going on for a while, right? And I think we talked about it a little bit in the Champions League games when we saw between the two of them, but also in the games between Argentina and France at the last World Cup where there was that that amazing 4-3. And I don't think we're going to be getting a 4-3 in the World Cup final, although, you know, a boy can dream. But equally, mm. when you're looking at this, I think you're, you're looking, okay, has... Has the crown passed? Has the torch passed? Because I thought it maybe had. And I think Lionel Messi's renaissance this tournament and, you know, over this course of this year, to be perfectly honest with you, suggests that maybe he's not just done yet. And and there is this kind of blind thing that Mbappe's won the World Cup so young with France. He, he's had that moment of, of glory in the sun where he was already the key man at sort of 18 mm. years of age, which is which is pretty nuts, frankly, isn't it? Like You're looking yeah. at that and thinking, wow, how many players stand up at that kind of age and, and go, well, I'm the main man. I'm going to make things happen. I am you know, set for the future. Whereas Messi's kind of coming at it from a very different angle. He's already said, yeah. this is probably my last World Cup. I don't think I'll make the next one. This is my kind of final shot at glory on this stage. And mm. that gives it a nice kind of bookend narrative, I think. One man at the very start of becoming the best player in the world, we expect, or one of the best players in the world. And one man coming towards the end of it, although you wouldn't know it with his performances in this tournament. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Mbappe has obviously come into international football at a great time. You know, whatever... Um, standards he'd set for himself have been helped massively by the fact here he is here 
23 years old, France in a successive World Cup final. Um, and you're thinking, all right, well, maybe he's just going to, every time he gets to the World Cup now, he'll just be in the final. Um, but it might not be the case. Like by the time he gets to the next World Cup, who knows? I mean, it looks like France are in pretty good shape going forward, but you never know. This might be Kylian Mbappe's last World Cup final. You don't know how things pan out from here. It yeah. seems unlikely. But that's why this is obviously so important to Messi um, for the whole narrative around his career, around the the duel with Ronaldo. Um, I mean, me and Sam discussed on, on Patreon after um, the Argentina win, should he just walk off into the sunset if he wins this? I mean, for everything that he's done at this point of his career, was he 37? Um it there must be a temptation if you win the world. He's sorry, thirty-five. Sorry, yeah, I, like, right. I was sorry, going to say we're we going a bit far. Oh, sorry, <laughs> um, but there has to be a small part. Of it. This won't happen, but I think there should be. If you if he wins the World Cup, don't play. Don't make your next game Lons away, Strasbourg at home, whatever it is. Get that World Cup. Stick it under your arm. Have the ten draped over your shoulder. Wave to everyone in the centre circle. Get out of there and never be seen on a football pitch again because you've done your work. Your life's work is complete in that moment. And and that's what is so appealing to me here. And I've talked before about, obviously, when I was ranking these, like, will the emotion get to Argentina in the semi-final? It didn't actually didn't need to in the end because the way the game panned out and the, you know, the penalty giving them the opportunity to, to go ahead. And it never really came to that moment where there was any doubt of which, around which way the game was going because it was it was done by half-time. Um, but now there is a, a deep emotion involved in this game and, it, and, it, and it's getting Messi this trophy he deserves. You talk about what I think is interesting too in the comparison between Messi and Mbappe is there's no doubt that like Mbappe has this um, ability to stop play and then just you know, get away from players in a way that probably nobody else can because Mbappe's got a pure explosiveness about him. Um, and uh, it gets out the blocks ridiculously fast. Um, and I don't know if that's just power in his legs that can push him forward in a way that other players can't do. Messi does it slightly differently. Like he doesn't have like quite the raw speed of an Mbappe, but I think he just throws players off balance ridiculously well. And obviously Mbappe can do that too, but... You know, Messi makes you dizzy. He really does. And Gvardiol knows all about that, obviously, from the lesson he was taught um, in the semi-final. So they, they are players that um, decide games. They are they are different, there's no doubt about it. But Mbappe is going to be him and Haaland, I guess, the heirs to Messi and Ronaldo. Um, I don't think it's going to be quite the same, but it's it's that's what you're looking at the moment for the next big things. Um so this is, uh, I'm really, really intrigued by it. A part of me actually does want one of them to decide it. I don't think, it doesn't usually end up that way. No, it doesn't usually end up I that way at all. But I think it might this time. I, I just have a feeling about it that one of them is going to be the difference maker here. And that's that's obviously not a particularly bold prediction. But I think you're absolutely right in that it's not normally that that, that happens. And you know they were talking on the commentary last night about the fact that Lilian Turam scored twice in the 1998 World Cup semi-final mm. and I was saying you know I was talking to Lucy and I was like do you know why that's why that's weird she's like why and I was like well because he was a centre-back 
Mm. Like it, it, it wasn't expected. And you look at the last World Cup, was it not a, a header from a centre-back? Well, it might have been Samuel Ntiti who scored the winning goal for France against Belgium in that semi-final. You know, mm. they're the moments that you go, OK, this is someone else has actually stepped up to get everyone over the line. You look who scored the winner for Argentina in the Copa America final. It's Angel Di Maria. It's not Liam, no, no, Messi. Do you know what I mean? These, these are the yeah. moments. And you go, is it time for the supporting cast to step up? But I think that takes us nicely onto it, right? Because actually the supporting cast have been incredible. And you look at, we'll come on to Griezmann, but you look at Julian Alvarez and Olivier Giroud, who both have four each, you know, four at this World Cup. They're one more from either of them and they're suddenly on the golden boot conversation again. You're like, oh, well, they're back. And, and yeah. two, two from one of them would, would project them into the, into the lead, which is, which is kind of mad considering, well, neither was supposed to be the starter for their countries yeah. a month out. You're, you're looking at this and going, oh, this is meant to be Lautaro Martinez and, and Kieran Benzema. And, and when, you're, when you're talking about these two players who have just stepped up into this limelight, you know, and, and again, at flip ends of their careers, Alvarez just coming into his own, Giroud towards the tail end of his, it's the kind of, that kind of duality of it I really like. You know, it's the Messi is the elder head with, and the superstar with this backup striker in, in Alvarez who looks like he's going to go on to be one of the great number nines in the game. And on the other side, you have Mbappe as the young superstar being kind of guided and loving playing off the old wise head in Olivier Giroud. And, and that kind of double act that's going on at either end of the pitch, I think, is, is a really, really nice kind of contrast. Yeah, I think you can run it deeper than that because I think that they use, you know, Messi and Mbappe have other players in the squad to thank that they're able to carry out the roles that they can in their, in their teams. I mean, Mbappe doesn't defend. Um, and you know, it's messy to be fair. No, well, I'll get to that in a sec, but to start with Mbappe, I mean, yeah, Teo Hernandez has a hell of a job on his hand a lot of the time. Um, now because, um, ultimately you've, you've got whoever it is in midfield, say it's Fafana or, or Rabio, whoever ends up playing on that side, but, um, they've got to get over there, not only do their job in the center of the park, but they've kind of got a They've got to cover up for what Mbappe doesn't do. And, and obviously like you have to take that for what it is. Mbappe, doesn't like doing that and he feels like he takes something away from his game if he was to start. Uh, maybe as he as he's gets older, you'll start to see him do it more. We see it with a lot of forwards that they actually start to enjoy doing different parts of their game. They take on a different responsibility and want to show that, hang on, and this isn't just me. Let me let me drop a bit deeper now and show you I can run a game as well from the middle. But we'll have to wait and see. In terms of Messi, look, he, he doesn't run very much anymore and it's fine because he's got legs in that midfield and you know, it's, it's fitting I guess that it's home alone season and Kevin McAllister's brother Alexis McAllister is uh, is running the World Cup for Argentina he's um, he's putting in a hell of a shift on behalf of um, of Messi and you know it's not just him but Alexis McAllister's been unbelievable like we we didn't think this would he'd be this good right he, he's he's done he's had a really good time at, at Brighton and he's propelled himself really onto a new level at this World Cup. And, and this is what I think is really intriguing because obviously, you know, we, we know that Alvarez is having a great impact and Giroud is still doing it. And they're, as you say, such contrasting stages of their career that it's fascinating to see how they how they do it. Giroud is all about experience and Alvarez is about rawness and no fear. Um, but it, it's the other side to it that intrigues me too. The, the fact that Mbappe and Messi are allowed to play the way that they do because other people 
are kind of selfless in in allowing that to happen. Yeah, 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 I think that's completely fair. I mean, interesting, isn't it, that Alexis McAllister's dad played with Maradona and he's out here playing with Messi at World Cup. What, what an I mean, extra that narrative that is. Just absolutely that is ridiculous. Ludicrous. ludicrous. Like, yeah, yeah, I want to have children with Alexis McAllister if that's possible for me. <laughs> <laughs> Send Taylor off. Um, right, so let's move on to Griezmann versus Argentina, which is how Sam has put this. Um, because, <laughs> well, I, I think he's right in that, yes, Maybe. Messi and Mbappe are taking the, the plaudits and you'd bet it'd be hard bet to put against either of them winning the golden ball should their side triumph, right? But actually, I think that Griezmann has been the best player at this World Cup, and, and so does Sam. Because y- you look at what he's doing, and you look at what he's offering to this team, and you've just talked about players getting older and taking on new responsibilities, right? Well, Griezmann is the kind of case in point, isn't he? He has mm. suddenly become this unbelievably hardworking eight. I mean, I've not put three pluses in my little notebook next to any player before <laughs> last night, right? And I didn't think France were actually very good last night. We'll come on to that. Yeah. But Griezmann is just absolutely incredible. He is everywhere on this pitch. If he's not between his centre-backs making challenges and helping them out in the box, he's linking play in the midfield. He's getting up and and spraying those passes out to Dembele and Mbappe wide so that France can get into those areas. He's delivering pinpoint crosses for Giroud at pivotal moments of games. And he's also one of the few players, I think, in in this France team who's happy to carry the ball from his own third into the opposition half. You know, he's happy to to take it and drive and, and move into those areas where France can be dangerous and are very dangerous in transition. And I think when you look at his performances throughout this tournament as a kind of number eight slash number 10, but I, I think calling him a number 10 when he's between his centre-backs doing the hard yards is probably mm. a little bit of a, is a misnomer in so many ways because mm. there's no way that you'd expect your your attacking midfielder in that regard to be doing those, those shifts. And, mm. and actually what Griezmann's brought to this side, he's kind of playing, we've talked about this a little bit, the Paul Pogba role from the last World Cup where he's kind of allowed to drift and other players behind him are, are, are kind of given that kind of positional responsibility in order to sit tight and, and make sure that he has that ability. But his work rate is through the roof. His ability is always kind of been unquestioned. And for me, I think he's been the best player at this tournament. Yeah, he's, he's certainly up there. I mean, Amrabat would certainly put out a case too for Morocco. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Griezmann's in the World Cup final. So obviously he's he's ahead of him now um, in terms of being the player of the tournament. I think it's interesting the way that Griezmann has taken on this role. Maybe, you know, where's a number eight for Atletico Madrid? Maybe maybe he's going to be the number eight for Atletico Madrid in the traditional sense. Well, I just because... don't trust Simeone to play him there. But for anyone I else, either. I think he would be. And it's kind of mad that, you know, obviously this Barcelona period that you look at and you go, oh, that just didn't work. He was wide. He was playing as a second striker. go back. Maybe you should go back and play as a number eight for, for Barcelona. It'd be great. Like Griezmann now playing like this for Xavi at Barcelona was... Would have been great. Um, well, I want Pep, I want Pep to sign him immediately. I'm just oh, like no. stick him as a number eight at City. He would thrive. Well, he's 31 now, so I guess like he is entering a new a new phase of his career. And like we're talking there about, you know, maybe one day Mbappe wants to change his game and do something different. Maybe that's where Griezmann has now got to, and he's taken on extra responsibility. Maybe, yeah, we talk about Pogba and what he would have been expected to bring to this French team. You know, if Pogba was fit right now, Griezmann wouldn't have had the opportunity to play this role. He wouldn't have, He wouldn't be doing this, I, I don't think. So that has become interesting in itself. And it obviously is 
such an important role to Didier Deschamps because you know, Pogba thrives in it most of the time um, and now Griezmann is too. So it's it's a really, really important position and I, I like that he stepped up to it. Oh, look, we all know anyone that's listened to this podcast for long enough that I've not been a big fan of Antoine Griezmann throughout his career and I don't like uh, some of the things that he's he's gone with in terms of like, what was it? That what was that video he did when he was making his announcement? Um, <laughs> La decision. La decision. That was absolute nonsense. Um, obviously, he brought out his own documentary, calling himself a legend and all this stuff. So there's a lot of stuff with Griezmann that I, I haven't enjoyed, but I have really enjoyed um, seeing him make a make this his stage. He's he's been brilliant, and he is yeah the player of the tournament so far. Will he get it though? That's what's interesting because. There's going to be, we've seen the way that man of the matches are handed out at this World Cup. Yeah. Um, it's either like who scored the best goal or who's the most famous player on the pitch, basically, um, gets gets the official prize. And if you're Mbappe, you you pose with the, the Budweiser man of the match trophy with no Budweiser on display. King, king so, of the match, I think. <laughs> king of the match, yeah, king of the match. Um, but, you know, if we were to look at this in a pure footballing sense, then Griezmann should be in in pole position to win king of the tournament, but it'll be Messi or Mbappe, I, I imagine, depending on who, who ends up winning it. Unless Griezmann drops a hat-trick in the final. In which case, maybe, maybe he will be in that conversation. <laughs> All right, we've got three more things to talk about, but we're going to do them after the break, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Ranks FC, where we are looking at the five key facets, the five key things that are going to define this World Cup final. The next two, Dean, I think are very interesting and roll into each other quite nicely. So I'm going to kind of roll it all together and we'll see how we go. But the first Mm -hmm. of them is Argentina's siege mentality. And Sam's described this as pretending everything is against them when it's not really, but it's working. For example, the referee against the Netherlands. But I think there's more to it than that, right? Yes, there was was that whole thing with the Netherlands. But I saw some quotes from Ozzy Ardiles, Argentina and Spurs legend the other day. And he was talking about Messi and that kind of Maradona-esque comparison that, that's going on at the moment. And he said just, you know, some things he said. I know in England, some people were surprised at his aggressive reaction after the Netherlands game, the confrontation with Louis van Gaal and some Dutch players. Um, van Gaal had tried to get to Messi to Messi to react before the game and flaming the fire by talking about how Messi didn't defend for the team. Then during penalties, the Dutch players were constantly trying to disrupt the Argentina players playing mind games by walking up to them and celebrating if they missed. I'm not quite sure how they did that because they only missed one, but alas. Um, this isn't yeah. to justify what happened, Adila said, but to understand it, there's a lot going on. Unsavory seeds from both sides. But in Argentina, many people loved this new image of Messi. It wasn't normal for him. It was more of a Maradona reaction, which means the people love him even more. The old perception was that he was cold and not passionate. Now they feel his desire to win for Argentina. We are Latin people. We react and show our emotions. Sometimes maybe we overreact. He was talking to the Daily Mail and... I think it's really interesting this because I, that was after the quarterfinal. I think we saw more of it in the semifinal, not necessarily in the way that he reacted or, or, or spoke to anyone, but actually just in his kind of game all around and, and, and the kind of barreling run that he sets up the third goal with is incredibly Maradona-esque, right? It's low center of gravity. It's not necessarily skipping past a player. It's using your body to work them. It's being able to roll them using using kind of your backside to get round the player. Mm. And I, I thought it was incredible to watch. And you look at that and there was moments in the game, you know, he was tracking at one point on the right wing and Vardy tried to clear it and it hit Messi in the head and went out. 
And Messi just stood there and he stared at him. Just like mm. literally just looked at him and was like, not going past me. You're not going mm. past me. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. There's something in the water here. And I mean, Miguel Delaney this morning described this as a rebellion, the way that the Argentina are playing and the way that they've kind of barreled their way to the final. It's not necessarily, you know, scintillating football. It's just this kind of sense of Argentina are at war. And they feel that way in so many ways. It feels like the rest of the team have kind of banded behind a general and they have every intention of taking that general to the pedestal. And and that's what I think is maybe different this time. Before, Argentina teams in World Cups, I think, have looked to Messi and gone, right, get us out of this. Mm-hmm. You know, make something happen. It's all on you. Whereas this time, it's like, if we we absolutely scrap our hearts out for you, Will you be able to produce something? And he has responded to that in the most positive possible way to go, yes, you give me the platform and I will lead you. And and that's the difference. This is a leader now on the park and off it. Someone who feels like they are part of a group, but also the group look to for inspiration. And I think that's a really incredible thing that's been set up by Scaloni within the mentality of this team. I think it comes down to as well, the fact that they came so close to going out of the tournament so early. And in that moment, they got a taste of what it would feel like to let their own nation down, but also how happy it might make the rest of the world. Because there was a sense of people gloating. You know, they obviously lost the first match, very surprisingly, uh, 2-1 to Saudi Arabia after leading and should have probably been 3 nil up by half-time. But then they went into the second match against Mexico. I remember it was on a Saturday night. And I remember um, have you had to watch that game because Argentina could be going out of the World Cup after two matches, the first team to be eliminated. And there was an anticipation around it. There was a feeling like, this is incredible. Argentina were tipped to go and win this tournament and they're going out. And I think that they tasted that. I saw Emmy Martinez say that, um, you know, the first half against Mexico was sloppy. And he said, everyone wanted us to lose that game. He said, everyone. He said, but we are fighters. We've got 45 million Argentinians behind us. And in every single ground, we've got 40 or 50,000 Argentinians cheering us on. And that's what's helped us through. And they did get through the second half of that Mexico game. And I think it all comes back to that. I think it comes down to the fact that they had to fight and wait and find a way to get through that second match so that they could actually start to become themselves again. So they, you know, losing the 36 game unbeaten run that they built coming into the tournament to lose it instantly, you know, it, it turned them, it turned them upside down, I guess. Like they, they did not see that coming. Nobody did. So they suffered that disappointment that other teams suffer later on and get knocked out as a result of it. They suffered it in the first match. And now, they don't want that to happen again. And I, th- I think that perhaps that's where that fighting prowess and that belief and that hope probably comes from right now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, they've been playing knockout football basically since the 22nd of November. <laughs> that's <laughs> nuts. Have, literally, <laughs> that, yeah. That's nuts. And I think, look, I've just flipped back to that page right, that I have from, from that game against Saudi Arabia. And my last note in capital letters, the whole thing says big questions over Argentina's mentality. Big yeah. questions. And now yeah. they're in the World Cup final. You know, well, that, was game, it, right? that was game five on game 61. 56 games later, <laughs> they are in the World Cup final. And when, you, when you're looking at this and going, wow, that, that's a team that's, that's really banded together. I think you're absolutely right. They, they kind of looked at it and went, right, it's us against the world. 
and and that has filtered into the way that they've played and i think it's filtered into everything they've done and 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 those things against the netherlands are kind of the way that you see that obviously it's less ugly against croatia because yeah. the game is far less tight but yeah. i think you completely understand how how people can 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 get there i mean mm. i contrast that right to, to my fourth point which is france's ability to get it done and you look at this, how many first teamers are missing for France? And look, I know Argentina have their own injury concerns, Nico Gonzalez, Gilles Celso. There are problems with this Argentina team too. But France are missing, as I make it, four te- four players who would actually 100% start if, they were, if they'd all been fit at the start of the tournament. Kimpembe, Kante, Pogba, Benzema all start mm. this game if France had got here and they'd all been fit at the start of the tournament. That's pretty nuts. You know, to have four first teamers missing and be starting yeah. and, and getting to a World Cup final is it, pretty stunning going. But, it's yeah. the, you know, yes, their depth is incredible. Fine. Yeah, sure. But I think more than that, it's the fact that France, I don't think, have really played well for the majority of this tournament. They've had glimpses. They've had flashes. But a lot of this tournament, you looked at and gone, France really haven't got out of third, fourth gear at a mm. maximum. And their ability to get things done when the chips are against them, when the odds are falling out of their favour. We saw, you know, those moments yesterday. And and I'm sure Argentina will take great hope from the fact that England got at them, that Morocco got at them big time and just couldn't take their chances. But actually, you look at this and France's ability to just sort of ride those waves of pressure, you know, however they get them done and make things happen out of nothing is pretty stunning. And, you know, this wouldn't be the first time that people have compared them to this Real Madrid side in the Champions League, right? You know, they're, they're just these kind of games where you're like, how have they done that? They've just mm. produced a moment out of absolutely nowhere when it was one-way traffic going the other way. And I think that ability is the kind of thing that wins you tournaments because you look at those 20 minutes after halftime and, and France defended well. You know, there were there are a couple of hairy, scary moments for them. But generally i thought france defended quite well and, and morocco were, were playing excellently and not being able to kind of knock the door down and then suddenly mm. france make a change and and deschamps deserves huge credit here because he brought Turam on pushed him out to the left wing completely closed down that overload that they were having with hakimi and, and ziek kind of getting on top of teo hernandez because mbappe wasn't tracking as you mentioned earlier on yeah and then they get it done and Mbappe conjures something else up. Yes, it's a deflection. Yes, both goals are deflections. Fine. They're ricochets. They happen when you get in good areas and you have good players who know how to react to those situations. And they kill the game stone dead with a second goal after it had been all Morocco pushing for that equaliser. And France's ability to just keep their heads in those moments and be like, we're world champions. It's going to be fine. We know that we have the quality to make teams pay. And you look at even the England game where England had equalised, were on top. And there was still really no panic from France. Yes, Upa Meccano was having his own kind of dither game. Fine. But like generally as a team, I think there was that kind of lack of there's no blaming each other. There's no people shouting each other. It's just like, whoa, we'll ride this and someone will conjure something. And Griezmann did, obviously, for Giroud. And I think that kind of unshakable belief is going to be massive going into a final, especially a final where I think the pressure is on Argentina. Yeah, and the pressure will still be on them even if they go ahead in this game, Argentina, because France just have absolute belief in the process and, and how they will get through it. You go back to the first game, they fell 1-0 down to Australia after nine minutes, kept playing, 
win 4-1. Uh, no problem in the end. You get to the next game against Denmark, like finally get their breakthrough with Mbappe just after the hour mark. France go 1-0 up. And then like five minutes later, Denmark bring it back to 1-1 and you're thinking game on, but Mbappe gets the game one late on and it's a 2-1 win and you're like, okay, they're showing the traits here that you need. The third game, they lost to Tunisia, but wholesale changes, they're already through. The Poland game, possibly their most straightforward, they win 3-1 and then the England game, you know, they go 1-0 up and then the, the whole game completely changes because the goal was reasonably early in the match. England probably come out a bit more than they would have done otherwise. Um, they come back to one all in the second half. And France, they didn't look likely to score, but you still felt they were probably going to. As you say, Griezmann produces a marvellous cross and, and they end up scoring. And then against Morocco, you know, they just get they get that early goal, which kills Morocco in a sense, but also makes them come out more. And then also, you know, they just believe completely in, in their ability to get their game won. I just think that with all this in mind, Argentina haven't really had that same moment to give themselves belief that if they fall behind in this game, they could perhaps overturn it. Because if you go through their fixtures, they went behind... Um, against Saudi Arabia, and they and they couldn't turn that back after two quick goals in succession. Um, there was the only other game where they've really suffered at all was probably the Netherlands game yeah. when they, they they were clear the game was one odd for Argentina, and the Netherlands forced their way back into that match and, and come back to draw two two. And if that game would have just kept running, they Netherlands would would have got the winner. I mean, we they, I think their second goal was literally scored in like the hundredth minute or something, so it was never going to happen. But there's just that that slight doubt from their point of view as whether they could how they adapt to setbacks in this game. And because France are so good and can certainly take the lead early on in this game, what would that mean to Argentina? We know that France can fight back. Do Argentina have it in their locker? Yeah, well, I suppose they'll just have to go one nil up then <laughs> and hope for the best. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be very, very interesting. And the last one, and I suppose is, it probably feeds into all of this, but it's tactical structure as opposed to tactical flexibility. France have not changed a jot really throughout the tournament, at least in the games that have mattered. You know, yes, they changed a little bit in in, in that Tunisia game. Kamavinga played left back, etc. But, yeah. you know, ultimately it's a 4-2-3-1. Giroud's the reference point. Griezmann drops in from the 10 into an 8, basically makes it a 4-3-3. A lot of the time out of possession. There's pace on these flanks that we know can absolutely destroy teams. There's incredible ability on both flanks as well. Dembele's, you know, just ability to ghost past a player, to just leave a defender for dead. And not in mm. the same way that Mbappe does. He, you know, Dembele yesterday at one point, sorry, and, and I think... I think it was it was Masrawi. He he just stops the ball and Masrawi goes sliding past him. And you're like, oh, yeah. there's so few players in the world who can do that, who can mm. just make and, and open the gap up. And then suddenly Dembele's gone. And you're like, wow, we're not catching him. And and when you these happens, and you know, the way that the midfield protects, um, that allows Teo to get forward, Kunde comes across to make it a three at the back sometimes and and tuck in into that into that position. I think it's, it's it's really kind of obvious how France is going to play. I have like you know a note this notepad, and I've got a pitch drawn on every second page, and I could fill in the France team right now. 
You know, I mean, yeah. I maybe leave. Oh, can you? Because who's playing centre back? Is well, it Kenyatta or is it Upamecano? There, there's two places you could leave the France the France team kind of open, right? And they are left centre midfield and left centre back because I think obviously those changes were a little bit enforced by by injury or by illness yesterday, should we say? Um, and but both players came in and did really really well. So do they continue on? And you'd have to play Rabiot if he's available, and I think. But I think Kanate would for me, get the nod over Upamecano. So so there you have, you know, maybe one or two decisions yeah. to make, but mostly the team picks itself. I have no idea how Argentina are going to line up. Like, no, it's none at all. Messi I, I think Messi will play. Yeah, I think that's probably about <laughs> right. I, I mean, I think I could name seven or eight of the players who will play, yeah, but I have yeah, yeah. no idea what shape they're going to be in. Obviously, they moved that five at the back to counter the Netherlands. They then went back to a four to counter Croatia, and it worked really well. So credit massively to Lionel Scaloni, who's, who's made those decisions. But do they go man for man against France? Because I, I don't know if you do. Do you have to get someone in to help Molina out w- with Mbappe? Probably. I think Taliafico has to play at left back or left wing back because he is the player there in that regard who has the most defensive acumen that could try and stop Ousmane Dembele. Mm. But... You know, are they going to go back to a back three in order to counter that threat? Maybe, but they might look at Morocco yesterday and go, well, that didn't work for them. So maybe we'll come out of that shape. I have a funny feeling they're going to ask Rodrigo de Paul to play on the right side of the midfield and just track Mbappe and play as that kind of deeper player in order to make sure that he's not got space and room to, to grow into. And we know that he can do that kind of hatchet job as well as the fact that he's an excellent footballer. And there's no doubt mm. about either of those, but he can yeah. do the dirty work as well. Paredes did all right, I thought, when, when he came in. And, and then they moved that back to a five when they were 2-0 up. It's going to be very interesting to see how Argentina line up. But this is the, the big question, is that you know exactly what France are going to do. How do Argentina counter it? Um, what, what I thought was really impressive about Scaloni's decision-making in terms of the, the Croatia game was that Pasalic played on the right-hand side of midfield, which I thought was a ploy to drop him in into the centre a little bit more and allow Brozovic to basically go man for man with Messi. And the fact that Argentina played that kind of diamond shape in the middle, Paredes at the base, De Paul and, and Fernandes on the edges and McAllister as this kind of 10 who got beyond Messi at times, meant it was impossible for them to do that, which meant that Messi was basically able to face up against Guardiola and, and do what mm. he did. And, and actually, I thought it was very, very clever. I just wonder how Scaloni is going to play it out with this final. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Enzo Fernandez, we've barely talked about um, in this episode so far, and he's uh, he has been one of the standouts too, and definitely yeah. a, a breakout player. So um, I think he's going to have a big say from an Argentinian point of view in how this goes. I just hope Argentina don't feel tempted to turn it into a war. I, I don't want that sort of final. I don't. I don't you know, I'm usually quite up for um, a scrap. No, a scrap, not not personally because I'm rubbish at them, but um, I'm up for watching one on the football pitch. And um, you know, you, you look at a couple of times in this World Cup, there's been that that temptation, I guess, to draw back on a trait which has followed them around through previous tournaments. I think, you know, particularly in England, like you ask people like what you expect from Argentina and people are like, oh, they're a dirty team, aren't they? And I don't think they, they really are a dirty team this lot, but they I just, think They that, just play in South America. Like, they, they just, just have yeah, the like, game just, works. 
they're, maybe they're built differently. Maybe they have to grow up and, and play a bit more. Um, Decisions like are they're... just let go. I think and, yeah, and this yeah. was interesting. And, you know, just to kind of take a tangent point very briefly, you mm. know, there was a lot of people criticizing the referee after the England-France game. And I think, you know, fairly so in, in, in many regards. Um, mm. Although I didn't think it was as bad as maybe some made out. But there was an element of that, that he was a Brazilian referee coming in here. And I think there was like a, you can't let as much go as you normally would. And then he basically was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to let, weird things go and not punish others and yeah. that made it quite lopsided in in, yeah. in many ways i think i don't think he made got many major decisions wrong but i think a lot of the kind of ma- main ones in the middle were a little bit harsh yeah. you know and then you're looking at it being like oh this game is a bit strange because something that's a foul up there is maybe not a foul down here and and i yeah, think I that kind so. of rubs off in in the players here as well yeah that's true if you think back to the Saka foul that led to france's first goal that would have been given in in england i think that's probably why we were uh, so annoyed about it as, as England fans because in our eyes that is a foul but you're right like in some some parts of the world that is let go because um, it's not it's not that bad and it's in you know it's it's just a moment of the game but it'll be really interesting to see how this game shapes out who who does actually manage to take control who's happy to let the other team take the ball um, you know we, we watched that at France um game open up um, on Wednesday and you know Morocco did everything that was not expected of them because they had to and a team that had averaged 30% possession ends the game with 60% possession they're forced to play in it in a way that had seemed alien to them for the rest of the tournament because they were forced to because they had to they're they're playing for an entire country that pride that's there Um, and I think that you know that was a, that was a lot of emotion involved for for Morocco, and it and it almost it worked for them to be honest. It almost got them rewards because it meant so so much. That's probably going to weigh on Argentina more than France. I don't think France have that so much. They they just have a a very firm belief in how they play, how they win, and that's that. They've done it before. All these kind of things. Whereas Argentina. They're a little bit like, oh, they're so excited, but they're so nervous, but they're trying to be controlled because they, you know, obviously they're great players too, but they've also got this edge of there are tens of thousands of their people around them. Like that stadium is going to be so Argentina. Um, it'll almost be all Argentina, I imagine, wouldn't you? Like yeah. this is going to be like, if Messi actually lifts the World Cup in that stadium, it's going to feel like a home World Cup, I think. I really do. Like, I don't. I think this is about as close as you can come to having a home World Cup and be thousands so far from home because the support that they've had is just absolutely ridiculous. And um, I don't know if that helps you or not. It probably should do. Um, but then again, it didn't help England at Wembley, so maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Um, right, that's actually all five <laughs> of the key points. I just wanted to add one thing that we get to witness two of the best national anthems in the world on Sunday. And I think that's great. Well, playing God Save the King. (laughs) (laughs) I like how everyone bursts into laughter every time anyone says that. Uh, But listen, just going to read out the the lyrics of both national anthems. Um, The Hymno Nacional Argentino 
goes thus in English at the very least. Hear mortals the sacred cry, freedom, freedom, freedom. Hear the sound of broken chains, see noble equality enthroned. Um, and it finishes, may the laurels be eternal that we were able to achieve. Let us live crowned in glory or let us swear to die with glory. Um, and obviously, La Masayeh pronounces as, uh, arise children of the fatherland, the day of glory has arrived against us. Tyranny's bloody standard is raised. Do you hear in the countryside the roar of those ferocious soldiers? They're coming right into your arms to cut the throats of your sons, your women. To arms, citizens, form your battalions. March, march, let impure blood water our fire. You know, these are these are war chants. You know, yeah. these are these are songs of, of going to battle. So I think it's going to be yeah. very, very interesting to see how wow. the reaction is. Um, no, exciting. What do you reckon, mate? Oh, come on, let's let's it's not a bold prediction, but like, what, what are you thinking? What's your guess? That's all it is at this stage. It's a guess. Well, my head says that France win this. My heart obviously says that Argentina yeah. finished the fairy tale. So as usual, I'm going to back my heart and go Argentina 2-0. Yeah. Yeah, two nil. Blimey, that is that is actually quite bold. Well, I think it'd be um, one nil, and they'll score as it goes a bit mad towards the end. Yeah, that's fair enough. Oh, it is De- so hard Debala, to call. De scores the second goal. <laughs> I didn't know. He was pl- I didn't know he was at the World Cup till the other day. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I don't think anyone did. <laughs> that's crazy. What about you? Um, I think probably France. I, yeah. I, now that I'm saying that, I don't really want it to be France, um, but I just think that they're probably slightly better. Yeah. I just think that they are the better team and you have to probably trust your instincts here. If if Argentina win, it would, be, it would make for a better story. It makes for better celebrations, I think. It makes for probably a better feeling globally, but... Um, Sadly, none of that really counts. And um, in France, they will have a determination. Because now I don't think it actually is Argentina against the world. I don't think it is. I think that the world probably is cheering for Argentina here. Yeah, because I don't think people are generally that keen on back-to-back winners. No, no. I I don't think think there's anything that endearing about this French team. I think there's only, if you were to be a neutral in this game, then if you're looking for something to get behind it, it's the Argentina narrative is there's very little about France that you'd be desperate to see come through here. So that's actually quite interesting on the back of what we were saying there about Argentina thinking the world's against them. It's going to be quite hard to believe that when they're walking out to everybody wearing their Jersey and knowing that around the world, like probably 70% of people would like them to win. Yeah. Well, I imagine, you know, across the border in, in Brazil, there'll be plenty of France shirts being sold. Uh, I'd yeah. imagine in Portugal, there might be a fair few France Brazil, supporters Portugal, for the day. Yeah, France, uh, yeah, and yeah. and I suppose in France as well. And, and, and yeah, I suppose there, there'll be some, some, some support, but I genuinely think, and I think we're England fans. I mean, I, I can't speak for it, but I imagine yeah, you, it's, not, it's a bit like the, the the lesser of two evils in many it ways. It really is. Yeah, that's the thing. Like it, people who are outside of England may not be aware, but I mean, like Argentina and England, um, from an English point of view, at least, like that that doesn't go together. We do not get on. And then we obviously don't like France either. Um, particularly, they've just knocked us out. Um, so, yeah, I don't, from a football standpoint, I don't really like either of these teams. But um, I have always wanted to go to Argentina for steak and a glass of Malbec. So on that, on, on account of that, 
Um, I want Argentina's win. Yeah, well, I'm going to be in the Albi Celeste stripes on Sunday. I think that much is very clear. And, and on that bombshell, I think it's probably time to call this a day, Dean. And all that's left for me to do is to say thank you all so much for listening to our World Cup final preview. Thank you very much to Mr. Sam Tai for providing some framework, even in his not particularly brilliant state. Thank you so much to our World Cup guru, Mr. Dean Jones. Cheers, mate. I've been Jack Collins, Knave of Hearts. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next Monday where we're going to be doing our full World Cup review show. Take it easy, gang. Peace.